0: Listeners, I am so excited to bring you the final episode of season two of Radio Cachimbona. I am most excited about this episode in which I interviewed Karina Oliva Alvarado, Alicia Yvonne Estrada, and Esther Hernandez, who are three badass Central American scholars who took me through the anthology that they edited. US Central Americans reconstructing memories, struggles, and communities of resistance. It was an incredibly rich conversation based in material and historical realities of Central American communities, and I think you all will really love it. Wanted to announce that I will be taking a break. I'm calling it a break, but I'll actually be prepping season three stuff for y'all. Super, super excited. Yes, Radio Gachimpona is going to remain. It's gonna grow and thrive I'm super excited about the new marketing and operations intern, Maybelline Perez, who y'all are going to get to know in season three, and through the graphics that she'll create for us and just incredibly excited to continue centering central american voices central american women scholars and to continue this ongoing conversation about abolition and the abolitionist organizing happening in southern arizona all the other kinds of resistance happening in southern arizona as well thank you so much for being on this journey with me if you want to support the season three efforts Right, You can become a patron, a monthly supporter. It's super, super helpful because I really do want to do podcasting full time. And in order to do that, I have to invest in myself as a podcaster, right? Have to figure out ways to improve the audio. I'm constantly trying to do things like that. So anything that y'all provide um, really helps me out because this is a completely self-funded project, a labor of love for y'all. You can also support by leaving an Apple podcast review. It really helps with visibility and also engaging when the conversation's happening at Radio Cachimbona on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks, y'all, and hope you enjoyed the last episode of season two.
1: I am very excited today to have three amazing Central American scholars here today to talk about their anthology that they edited called U.S. Central Americans. I'm really excited today to have Alicia Estada, Alicia Yvonne Estada here, who is a professor in the Chicana, Chicano Studies Department at California State University at Northridge. She has published on the Maya in Guatemala and Diaspora in Los Angeles, as well as on contemporary Maya literature, film, and radio. As I just mentioned, she's the co-editor with Serena Alvarado and Esther Fernandez of the critical anthology US Central Americans Reconstructing Memories, Struggles, and Communities of Resistance. Estaba's work has appeared in Romance Notes, Latino Studies, Revista Canadiense de Estudios Hispánicos, among other journals and anthologies. Her current book project is on the Maya diaspora in Los Angeles, and since 2006, she's actively collaborated with the Maya Radio Collective Contexto and Sister. The show has been on the airwaves for over a decade on the community radio station, CPSK. Also with us today is Dr. Esther Hernandez, earned her Ph.D. in social science at UC Irvine and is now a professor at the Chicana Chicano Latina Latino Studies at Cal State Los Angeles. She has published on Salvadorian migration and remittances in social science journals such as the Journal of American Ethnic History and Economy Society. She received a Rockefeller Community Scholarship in 2003 at Cal State LA on the theme of families and belonging in the multi-ethnic metropolis. Born in Salvador she serves on the board of directors of the Coalition for Humane Immigrant Rights of Los Angeles and is the co-editor of the anthology US Central American. Her current research linked to immigrant rights, economic development, and cultures of memory among children of the And Finally, we also have Karina Alma, who was born in Salvador and raised in the People's Union and West White regions in Los Angeles. She holds a BA in English, an MFA in creative writing, and a PhD in ethnic studies. Her work challenges US disseminated epistemic violence against Central America and Central Americans by centering their lives in narrative work. She critiques systems of race, class, gender that intersect unindoculated communities and migrations in context neoliberalism and cellular neocolonialism, in particular as anti-Central Americans. Her interdisciplinary work examines intercultural and transcultural texts, memories and identities, especially in Latina, Latino, Latinx communities and through internal practices of domination and racial gender hierarchies. Her research interests include cultural memory studies, embodiment, and in developing U.S. Central American scholarship studies and methods. Welcome to you all. Thank you so much for being here today. This is super exciting.
2: Thank you for having us,
1: Yvette. Yvette. Happy to be here. Amazing. So if you all don't mind, I think we can just jump in to the questions. And you all do have various regional expertise and I know that each of you can speak to that specifically as you wish. So I'll start with the first question, which is kind of a general one to get us grounded in the history of the region. Can you speak to the US capitalist and imperialist interests in the Northern Triangle region that date back to the late 19th century and how land distribution since then has been at the center of economic and political instability. Karen, who wants to go first? Well,
2: I can start. I think, you know, in terms of the region, we can see U.S. interests in, since William Walker, you know, marching into uh, Nicaragua, into Central America, uh, declaring himself president, right? This, of course, is uh, something that, Ernest, you know, the Nicaraguan poet Ernesto Cardenal uh, really sort of brings to light, right, in, in, in his specific poem on on William Walker. Of course, William Walker gets assassinated in Honduras. But we see very, very early on, right, uh, uh, before the 19th century, even before these uh, nation states were becoming nation states uh, in terms of U.S. interest in the region. And of course, you know, historians have noted that the United States was very much interested in expanding the U.S. southern plantations to Central America. Under that interest, and that interest both in terms of land, but also in terms of Human capital, um, and in um, the use of, you know, um, um, Central American bodies as as producing U.S. Uh, products. Um, you know, you see a very, very long uh, uh, a history of continuous use interventions, right? Of course, the one most noted uh, uh, in, in Guatemala through, you know, through the United Fruit Company, the coup of 1954 that uh, overthrew the democratically elected uh, president uh, Jacobo Arbenz Guzman, who um, was proposing a social democratic government in that country, it was seen uh, as a model, uh, not just for the region, but for Latin America. You remember Ernest, uh, um, Ernesto Che Guevara, uh, before joining Fidel Castro in Cuba, was in fact in Guatemala uh, aiding the Arvinds uh, uh, presidency, right? And this is a U.S.-orchestrated, CIA-orchestrated coup that overthrows this government and then installs continuously over decades dictators that will continue to support U.S. economic and political interests.
1: Super interesting. I had no idea about the history of William Walker. Could you just elaborate a bit on why he zeroed in on Nicaragua, what the connection was there? He was born in Nashville, Tennessee. How did this person decide that he wanted to overtake the Nicaraguan presidency?
3: Hello, this is Karina. So William Walker, yes. We're looking at 1856, 1857, and he was actually invited in to Nicaragua by the liberals. And so we have to realize that, and this is gonna tie into communism later on, but you had a dichotomy, right? A a binary party system that was established post-independence between the liberals and conservatives. And so this um, contributed to a lot of internal strife within the nation states of Central America, as it also contributed to the strife uh, when you had the United Provinces of Central America. And so once the countries um, proclaimed their sovereignty and they had to do this, they did it with the Spanish Empire and then they did it from the Mexican Empire, right? And then they became the United Provinces of Central America, and then they disbanded the United Provinces of Central America, and then finally we reached that stage of the individual nation building that occurred. And so you still had this strife between the liberals and conservatives that was ongoing and the liberals actually invited William Walker in. William Walker was an entrepreneur, but he was also a filibuster. He had attempted, for example, to actually colonize Baja California and had failed. And so when he was invited in to fight for the liberals in Nicaragua, he saw it as an opportunity, again, with his own goals of colonization. And, um, and by that, I mean colonization. And so, for example, once he entered in and he became part of uh, the liberal army, um, he actually put his own schemes, right, uh, machinations in play. And so he got the backing from the United States to colonize uh, Nicaragua. And so this included, for example, land grants that were given to uh, any American who was willing to become a colonial settler in Nicaragua, and in the process, of course, to join the, the army that he was leading. Wow. Uh, 1856, 1857, he, uh, he was president of Nicaragua. and so that's pretty like amazing, right? News that, I mean, here an American enters Nicaragua even if he was invited in and then becomes president of Nicaragua. Um, he wanted to institute slavery in Nicaragua, but also looking at Central America. The world, really, uh, we're, we're talking about the global north, the uh, Europeans, uh, Americans looking at Central America to establish a canal. And so the, 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 prior to the Panama Canal, the interest was actually in Nicaragua because of Lake Nicaragua which would facilitate then creating a canal and not digging through so much land, but actually using that waterway, right? That's there, Lake Nicaragua. And so um, he was interested in that. And that was, of course, for his own personal profits and for those who were backing him, right, in in this goal and this plan in creating a canal in Nicaragua. Ultimately, as Alicia was saying, he, um, it, you had the, even though the United Provinces of Central America by this time were disbanded, an army came together. And so, and this was of, of the Central American nations at this time. It was just considered the the four nations. Actually, it didn't include Panama at this time, and it also didn't include Belize at this time, right? And so... Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, they formed an army, and they actually fought William Walker. Um, Ultimately, um, he lost, he was exiled, he was returned back to the United States, um, and and even after he was returned to the United States, he returned once more right, to, um, to Nicaragua, again, with the hopes of colonization, instituting, again, instituting slavery. Uh, he wanted to also uh, institute, make Central America an English-speaking uh, region, um, but he was caught and he was executed. And so that's the story of William Walker. But it becomes really symbolic then, right, of that... Imperial plan of of that um, manifest destiny that was extended beyond the borders of the east to the west in the United States, and really look to Latin America and, in particular, to Central America as the region to to conquer.
4: That's great, Esther. Would you like to add? Sure. I think you know a lot of the things that have been mentioned already. I don't want to repeat them, but just to emphasize that. Capitalist development has been key to understanding the relationship between the U.S. imperial interests in Central America, right? And uh, what has been mentioned about the uh, Chiquita banana as a you know United Fruit Company going into Honduras, um, Nicaragua, Guatemala. And, um, you know, that's one aspect, right, that people have written about a lot. And the other aspect um, has to do with the canal, right? And so when we look at the history of Central America and we look at what um, occurred in the 80s, right, all those things kind of come back, right, to, to help us contextualize what is going on. In, for example, in 1989 with the invasion of, P- of Panama and um, the civil wars that were going on in Guatemala and El Salvador at that time, right? And, uh, that also helps us to remember that the U.S. intervened, right, not only in um, Nicaragua with the Contra War, but also in, again, in Panama, as I just mentioned, and El Salvador for the reason of imperial interest, right? Like, so, so that's sort of the, the highlights I wanted to give to what my colleagues have said.
1: Great. Uh, could you all speak a bit more to the time period where there were the uh, United Provinces of Central America, and could you speak to why they disbanded, how those borders were drawn, and who drew them?
3: The United Provinces of Central America, I really consider it as a as a dream, a dream of unification, especially looking at empire, right, and looking at American empire, and also having just proclaimed their sovereignty from the Mexican empire. And so this goal of unification that included the Patrias Chicas, right, individual uh, countries, but again, under this more politically enabled body, right, that would hold greater power than uh, regionally, right, if there were a collective, and so with the collective goals of helping one another economically, um, also politically, also in terms of safety. But I had mentioned the strife between the liberals and conservatives, and so within each nation, there was that ongoing strife, the battle between the liberals and conservatives, but then also among the countries. And so, for example, we could see this more symbolically through Rafael Carrera um, uh, in, from Guatemala, uh, who really represented the conser- conservative ideals. Uh, those conservative ideals included they were anti-liberal in the sense that they did not want to invite um, what we would call colonizers, right? Especially American intervention also from uh, the U.S. and um, Europe. And so that was something that was positive. On the other hand, it was negative in the sense that it continued to privilege elites. Uh, These were colonial elites that had been established um, through um, their power, Their relations of power with Spain. And they were very much uh, pro-Catholic. And so they believed in that very kind of intersected and embedded relationship of the state with the church. And so those were some of the more negative aspects of the conservatives. And um, like I said, that was represented by Rafael Carrera, a, a caudillo, right? Kind of that's a precursor to like a dictator, right? He, he proclaimed himself president like uh, forever, right, of, of um, Guatemala. And so that was a conservative ideals. And then the liberal ideals was really represented by El Salvador and Francisco Morazan, who was actually Honduran, right, but that um, he centered the liberal state and also the United Provinces of Central America in El Salvador, right, the capital of El Salvador. And so what ensued then was just actual uh, battles, right, actual strife between and confrontations between Rafael Carrera and Francisco Morazán and, um, and the various parties that they were uh, representing. Um, and so that was really, from my understanding, what brought down uh, the United Promises of Central America. It was that divide between the conservative ideals and the liberal ideals. Um, the liberal ideals, of course, promoted the liberalization of the economy, right? welcoming in European and American loans, and through that, then, actual uh, European and American intervention and occupation. Of course, uh, kind of the more progressive elements of that is these ideas of development right of of just growing the nation state right economically, um, also in terms of development in terms of infrastructure, etc, and so that too had some some uh, more positive ideals in terms of, for example, they wanted to um, separate that intrinsic Relationship that had been developed through those colonial relations between the church and the state. And so, again, there were some pros and cons, also, right, for, for the Liberal Party. But really, then what divided the United Promises of Central America was that strife um, between the conservatives and the liberals, best represented by Rafael Carrera and Francisco Munazan. I don't know if um, Alicia or Esther wants to add anything to that. Now, I just wanted to add that,
2: of course, this these are sort of struggles, political and economic struggles within the established uh, Central American male, right, yo-yo elite. These borders that are established by them both. Like Geological and geopolitical in some ways are oftentimes challenged by indigenous populations, by, um, you know, working class uh, women uh, who have historically migrated uh, uh, within the region. Right. And also to the southern part of Mexico. So while you know, we have these sort of political and economic struggles that Karina outlines for us in regards to the establishment. There's certainly different kinds of social and economic dynamics that are taking place uh, within these uh, very uh, multi-ethnic heterogeneous uh, communities.
4: Yes, I I agree, you know, that we need to pay attention to how The establishment of these nations, right, is really gendered and classed and and racialized. So there were inherent conflicts, right, with, with these unities that were primarily military and, as Alicia mentioned, economic. And I think it also kind of speaks to how these areas were connected to a global economy, right, and how their economies are shifting in the 1840s, 1850s right? And um, each one of the countries has a different trajectory in that regard. But just briefly on that.
1: Thank you. Also, that's super interesting. I wanted to focus more on the Salvadorian context and ask about the 1932 matanza and kind of the ongoing targeting of indigenous people. And wanted to ask you all how U.S. fear-mongering around communist governments, facilitated state violence against indigenous people seeking rights to their land, and as I said, particularly in the Salvadorian context with La Matanza.
4: I don't know who wants to start. I guess I'll I'll just uh, say a little bit about it, right? It's it's a, a really complex period, obviously, and, you know, there's contested histories or narratives about what occurred, right? And some people emphasize the indigenous origin of the rebellion and other people emphasize the uh, labor organizing that was taking place, right? And we have to remember that at the root of all of these conflicts is is um, you know labor, labor struggle, labor relations at uh, land, right? And we have populations that were very exploited and discriminated against, and particularly the indigenous populations were experiencing different kinds of of uh, exploitation and. In racialized forms of oppression, right, within um, El Salvador. So I think, you know, the part of the narrative, right, is basically contextualizing within internationalist politics, um, class politics, but at the core of it and understanding what happened in El Salvador specifically is talking about the indigenous identities that were present within the nation of El Salvador, right? And that as a result of the massacre, um, the identity of indigenous populations gets um, further oppressed. And in some ways, people argue that it erased it, right? It it erased indigenous identities as, as uh, vibrant, as um, resistant, as um, living, as continuing, even after that happened, right? So Obviously, it—not it, it, obviously—but a lot of people talk about that particular incident as a genocide, right? A genocide of indigenous populations in in, um, in El Salvador. So, I think again, I would emphasize that it's basically contextualizing the issue within two within two. Um, narratives, one that connects it to the labor struggles of the period, the labor struggles of Central America, right, because it wasn't just El Salvador that was undergoing that kind of conflict and you know that there that it's important to emphasize that there was a, a strong international or, or Central American, right, Central American labor activism, unionism, communism was taking place And in in the whole region, but in El Salvador, it took that turn of a response to communism. But what it ended doing, what what it did do is it decimated indigenous populations. So just, I don't know what my colleagues want to um, add to that.
3: Thank you, Esther. So we're looking at 1932, and just for your listeners, in case they're not aware of um, the great slaughter, right, La Matanza of 1932, it represents the mass killing of primarily Pipil peoples from the western region of El Salvador, it is a 30,000 estimated that were murdered. The uprising occurred January 22nd and immediately, with an immediate response, not only by the military state, but, and I'm calling it the military state because we see uh, at this time the actual transition to uh, a military Military state dictatorship, and that was the dictatorship of uh, Hernandez Martinez. And so This occurred, this matanza immediately, right? And that was just the mass killings of mostly men who took part of this uprising, but that also included women and children. And so Laura Laura Gould and Santiago have written on this, um, To Rise in Darkness, and they have looked at it. It's really a, a wonderful text that they look at it day by day and the actions that took place And it occurred through a three month period actually with like the indiscriminate killing happening just immediately that the weeks that followed the uprising. This is when the majority of of people were killed. And then there were some targeted massacres of of, um, within uh, Nahuizalco and the Isalco region. And then uh, finally, the targeted persecution of, and killing of individuals who had been branded uh, communists or organizers of, of the uprising. And they had, it had uh, outcomes, gendered outcomes, for example. Uh, it is said that during this time, men dropped wear, um, wearing their, their uh, traditional kind of clothing, the, the white pants and the white shirt with the red bell and then the, the corvo, the, the machete. So these were kind of marked as visual markers of indigeneity, right? And that during this timeline, women also stopped wearing their own trajes or any type of clothing that would mark them as indigenous. Because it is at this point then that indigeneity became synonymous with um, subversiveness. Right And so uh, it's also been looked at that uh, even though you could say the killing, the mass killing that occurred, which was genocidal, because it particularly targeted indigenous peoples and had outcomes of oppression and repression onto indigenous communities, that Ma- Hernández Martinez actually didn't kind of tie into the communist component until he did so to improve his relations with the United States, okay? Because initially, he came in through a coup, and as a dictator, right, he came in through a coup, then the matanza happened, and initially the United States hadn't acknowledged his administration, but once this genocide occurred, and once he proclaimed it as anti-communist, then he was um, acknowledged as a legitimate president of El Salvador. Let's see, anything else to, to add to that? Um, I think for us and the book that we, we worked on together, uh, we really focused on uh, that period as part of the um, historical uh, memory, historical trauma, right, that remains, even to date, even as survivors have passed away, right? Um, part of the narratives that are still passed down and that we're still trying to contend with and address. And very importantly, because the the Matanza of 1932 produced this myth of erasure of indigenous peoples, right? And it lasted for several decades. It included uh, erasure of indigenous uprisings historically, right, throughout colonization, post-colonization, right, uh, during the time of nation building. And, um, and so now, currently, we are addressing this myth and really just bringing to light right, the um, indigenous people's own narratives and their own voices, right, and them speaking for themselves and showing that this is a complete lie, their um, indigenous peoples are part of El Salvador. They are present, they are living, they have uh, been in resistance right since colonization.
0: Alicia, would you like to add? Yeah, I just wanted to add
2: something. Uh, I I think looking at it a bit more regionally and hemispherically, um, if we think about the 1920s, precursor to the 1930s, there's this whole eugenics projects that are taking place in Latin America, right, this idea of bettering the race, right, through miscegenation, through uh, uh, racial mixing, right, in Guatemala, uh, you have uh, uh, the government uh, providing incentives to German immigrants to immigrate to Guatemala so that they can eventually, uh, you know, mix and improve the race, right. there's this idea of quote unquote the Indian problem that we see throughout Latin America, right? And you know, of course, Miguel A. Estudios's uh, infamous uh, uh, dissertation, right? The Indi- you know, on the Indian problem, uh, published in the 1920s. So the eradication of indigenous communities, um, the genocide of the 1930s in El Salvador, uh, very much uh, uh, informed by these political um, and um, ideological uh, practices and ideas, right? So on the one hand, you have that, right? This, these, these conversations around, quote-unquote, the Indian problem, these eugenics projects. And on the other hand, you also have the ways in which, I think precisely because of what Esther and Karina were mentioning, because communism uh, as a movement was becoming something incredibly uh, vibrant, uh, in the Central American region and in Latin America, in Central America specifically, and we see this, you know, uh, after the 1930s, we see this very clearly in Guatemala, communism becomes this all-encompassing term. And it becomes a way of completely dehumanizing, demonizing uh, uh, peoples, right? And indigenous peoples, even without any form of affiliation to communism. Certainly there were, in the Guatemalan context, there were certainly, um, you know, and um, Greg Granton has written about this, right? There are certainly uh, people, uh, indigenous peoples who were part of the communist party, but in the context of the Guatemalan uh, uh, genocide, uh, there are a lot of people who were not, who were accused of communists in the same way as in La Matanza, so that we begin to see a different way in which communism is utilized by the state as a way of justifying a uh, uh, terror and violence uh, and ultimately, the eradication of these communities. Um, I did want to sort of say as a reference to some of your listeners, a, a documentary, kind of an old documentary called Scars of Memory uh, that deals with La Matanza that might be of interest
4: uh, uh, to them to view. I Thank agree. you. <laughs> I agree with that. I, I agree with that resource. And the other thing I would add to what Alicia just uh, and, and Karina just mentioned is um you know how communism became an excuse, right, for quashing any kind of sindicalismo, the formation of sindicatos, both in the rural areas and in the in the cities. And um, so that's really kind of what the core, what what all of these repressive tactics were about, right? And the other thing to mention for readers who might be interested or listeners who might be interested in in a um, regional history or even you know the history of specific countries. That in El Salvador, in particular the nineteen thirty two marked a growth of militarism right and the growth of military institutions um, as part of the, the the strategy of nation building and um, you know that was something that Martinez really utilized to his own advantage to keep his his power and that others continued right other military um, Men continued in the region. So, just um, you know, it's, it's a long, complex history. But I just wanted to add those two things to what my colleagues just uh, said.
1: Thank you for that.
0: Jules, <music> speak a bit more to the indigenous resistance, to particularly during the time period of the. The breakup of the United Central American provinces and this this time period of nation building that you say is uh, is part of the effort of La Matanza and this and the larger region, goal targeting of indigenous people as communists and utilizing that false justification to engage in ethnicide. Could you all uh,
4: speak a bit more about the specifics of that resistance? I, I don't know who wants to jump in, but. I'll just briefly um, talk about, you know, in terms of El Salvador, right? And a lot of the indigenous resistance has to do with land and has to do with the choices made in that uh, territory, right, to turn the land into producing producing indigo, producing coffee, right? Like, so um, turning the countries into producing cotton for export, producing coffee for export, producing um, anil, right? The the indigo for, for um, export. So I think at the core of the indigenous resistance has to do with the fact that as, as these economies grew, as these economies developed in that manner, people were displaced from their land and from their culture, right? So you know, when we look at why specifically these things happen in the western region of El Salvador, obviously the land dispute is major in that, but as, as El Salvador becomes a national, it, it's organized in, in in the way of a nation, of a state, right, um, it is a very uh, Latinized country, right, and that, that has to do with the fact that the population declined and also it was integrated into the state, right? As the state was growing, those populations were declining. And on top of that, you have um, violence and military displacement taking place. And just conflicts that we see today, right, because some of the, you know, I'm going to jump ahead probably, but some of the things that we see today in terms of, you know, white people are are being displaced, white people are migrating, it has to do with land disputes, right? They do not have sustainable ways of supporting themselves and they are not integrated into regional economies there's there there aren't uh, industries that sustain the level of people being displaced from the from the rural areas, and it has to do with the economic model that the that the states have pursued. So I would basically look at it generally, uh, just for the purposes of the podcast, right? But obviously, there's such rich um, histories in in these areas and specific nations, right, that have fought displacement in El Salvador um, in in obviously to Alicia can speak to that in in the case of Guatemala but I think you know there has been a tendency not to talk about indigeneity necessarily in El Salvador and to see 1932 as a turning point right as a like you know a, a punto in nueva cuenta kind of thing right so um it, it has been um sort of like approached in that way, but um, indigenous communities are present and exist. And um, a lot of the reason why we don't hear about them has to do with the, the 1932 Matanza, but it also has to do with the integration of those communities into the state, whether it be through education, whether it be through the military. And, you know, just, just th- those are two ways. And the other way has to do with uh, those El Salvador in particular has been an economy um, that has emphasized agro export, an agro export economy. And that had an impact on the 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 continuance of indigenous populations that once displaced from the rural areas went into the cities and were part of the sindicatos, right? Syndicatos de zapateros, syndicatos de de todo, right? Uh, So I think um, I've just been looking into some uh, historical, like uh, for example, uh, birth certificates and things like that, right? And it's clear that even up to like 1880s, in the 1880s, when they started tracking um, and Um, using the state to document births, rights, and deaths. Um, El Salvador was a a Latinized um, country already, right, that had been undergoing this push, um, this, this, um, the the, the agroeconomic model, right, towards more um, export-based economy really had an impact on that. So I I would just... um, That's what I would have to add to that in terms of the indigenous aspect. And just to remember that, you know, El Salvador has a a strong um, Afro descendant population that has been erased also as a result of this racialization that has been specific to to that country. But it's also interconnected to what Alicia mentioned of uh, eugenicist projects and state projects that have modeled themselves after European Patterns, right, and and therefore, um, I, when with, when I say Latinized, I don't mean like whiten, necessarily. I mean, you know, all of those combinations that could could be present in El Salvador and in other places, but in El Salvador in particular, a strong Afro-descendant population that has not been acknowledged and that people are fighting today to to do right. So. Um, so I think that, that that's what I would say about that. So it's both the indigenous question, and it's also the question of how the how what process right? what violent process was used to Latinize the population. And Latinize, to me, to um, you know, people who may be unfamiliar with the term, is to um, you know so, so that they became non-indigenous uh, speakers, right? They became uh, Spanish speakers. And also it was used to describe people that tended to be more u- Europeanized or mixed, right? So that, that was the word for, for mixed, really, um, that, that was used in El Salvador in particular. So uh, I'll open it up for my colleagues.
2: I guess I would just add, you know, more specifically in terms of Guatemala, if you remember the 1930s and 1940s, which is the time that we're talking about right now, um, it's under the dictatorship of Jorge Rico. And this is the period of uh, intense forced labor laws. This is the period of, of you know, indentured servant servitude, uh, where indigenous peoples are forced Uh, uh, to labor uh, uh, for free for the state, to build the roads, right, that will facilitate the movement of the elite and international capital. So You know, one thing that I would remind uh, listeners is that we need to think about indigenous uh, resistance as something that has been continuous, right? While there were certainly large revolts, and there were large revolts uh, uh, throughout since the colonial period, some of which were led by women, right? Uh, We always, you know, people always conceptualize revolts as led by Uh, male leaders, right? And those are the ones who are oftentimes celebrated. But there were certainly revolts led by women and continue to be, uh, even in the 70s and 80s and and, and 90s and and to date, right? Uh, There were also everyday forms of resistance, right? From refusing to labor uh, uh, for the government for free to the everyday practices of maintaining uh, their language uh, textiles and uh, a spirituality at a time when all of this is completely demonized. So I would just uh, sort of highlight that we think about uh, resistance, um, not just in the very sort of um, visible forms of revolts. Of course, there are numerous revolts. You know, the Patisia revolt will come in 1945. And of course, uh, we have the revolt in Panzos in the late 1970s, which sort of for a lot of historians becomes the beginning of, of the genocide, right, in Guatemala that marks led by Mama Makin, right, a, a, a Maya Kichi woman. So um, I, I wanna encourage us, I, I guess, to also think about resistance as the everyday practice, right? Not just in the form of formal organizing, that's very important, but the everyday form of resistance that indigenous peoples uh, uh, continue uh, to to engage
3: in. Karina, did you wanna add something? I thought Esther's response was really just uh, complete. Um, yeah. Looking at, um, Land, the land dispossession um, that occurred uh, primarily through Ladinos. Um, mm-hmm. Ladinos were part of that anti-indigenousness that informed La Matanza, right? And so it wasn't just the military that participated in the killing, but actual civilians, people. And so what were their interests behind um, the murder of indigenous peoples? It was this fear of revolt that had been ongoing for centuries by Hispanicized mixed peoples, right? of El Salvador, but um, also the, the desire for their land, right? And it's, it seems so reductive to just say that, but truly that is behind so much of the violence that has occurred and now the neoliberalism, right, um, that's occurring in El Salvador and the region, is just the desire to occupy the lands that are part of the heritage and the rights of Indigenous peoples throughout the region of Central America.
0: Thank you all. This is super, super informative. I'm so grateful that you all came onto to the podcast today. I wanted to speak a bit more to the present day and how these historical threads connect to it. I wanted to ask if you all could speak to the legal bind that the U.S. has placed many Central Americans who have fleed who did flee in the 80s, for example, US funded civil wars. So it created the crisis that led to these mass migrations. And then upon arrival, Central Americans were systematically denied asylum. And, you know, you all spoke in the book about how Guatemalan and Salvadorian migrants actually continue to be defined as economic migrants, quote unquote, despite the ongoing U.S. intervention into politics in the military. So I wanted to see if you all could speak a bit more about this contemporary moment and the ways that the U.S. legal system has placed Central Americans in this kind of state of precarity by systematically denying them asylum, despite intervening in politics?
2: Well, I think to um, recognize that Central Americans were fleeing U.S., you know, um, U.S.-sponsored civil wars would completely... Um, point to the hypocritical stance by the United States government right that they stood for democracy if you remember at the height of the civil wars and during the the Rios Montt uh, regime who is found right uh, guilty of genocide uh 7 years ago um you know then president Ronald Reagan uh praised uh um, um uh, Rios Montt, uh, for the for for his you know, for his presidency in the country and the way that he was running the country. It wasn't just, uh, uh Reagan in the U S government. It was also, um, you know, conservative, uh, Republican, uh, politicians, and it was also U S evangelical churches. If you remember, uh, Rios Mont was a, a, a pastor and he would broadcast in the 1980s, um, you know, um, and talk about you know eradicating the bad and and, and using biblical terms. Um, I think you know we've kind of highlighted since the beginning of of this interview and conversation the need to recognize difference within the region. And this is one specific space, right, where we need to recognize that uh, in Guatemala there was a genocide that was committed. Um, this was found by the United Nations truth commissions, right? And so uh, people. Uh, fleeing uh, uh, Central America or Guatemala at the time uh, were fleeing uh, uh, genocidal uh, uh, policies and practices that completely eradicated uh, entire communities. Uh, Guatemalans, um, in relation to other Central Americans, were the ones that were most denied asylum, um, even at the height of the civil war. And and part of this is because uh, um, uh, giving them asylum would mean that the prices that at the time Ronald Reagan uh, uh, was giving uh, um, uh, Rios Montt uh, would would, uh, be contradicted, because then it would show that, in fact, uh, uh, Rios Montt was uh, um, leading uh, the military into eradicating entire populations.
3: And to add to that on the hypocrisy or the denials of consequences of U.S. involvement in the isthmus, we can compare uh, Reagan's, uh, really his discourse around indigeneity. So, for example, like Alicia was saying, in particular, the people who were fleeing the, um, Guatemala um, were Maya and continue to be, right, um, Maya peoples who are suffering the most marginalization by the nation state. During that same timeline that we're looking at the 80s with Reagan, um, at the same time that we, meaning the US, right, was funding Uh, the war, the civil war in Guatemala, you're also fighting a Contra war in Nicaragua. But in terms of looking at the indigenous peoples in Nicaragua, in particular Miskito people, um, Reagan positioned, uh, one of the reasons why we should, for example, back the Contra war and the Contras was because he positioned the Sandinistas as being anti-indigenous. And so as if, he, as if he cared at all, right, for indigenous peoples in the region. And so he used the Miskito people in that case with Nicaragua as we must support the Contras because they're just defending the Miskitos, which that itself is, is you know, a lie that could be un- unpacked. Um, and then at the same time funding these other administrations, for example, in Guatemala who were in fact enacting genocide.
4: Yes, I, I there, <laughs> there's a lot of just abandoning of Central American populations, right? An abandonment that is not only from the U.S., but I think it's from the international community as well. And I would think specifically to the U.S. in terms of this re- rebuffing Central American um, asylees, right, or asylum applicants at the border. Uh, extending the 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 reach of its policing um and security initiatives to the south southern mexican border and um right. all of those all of those things right uh they're an int- it's a continuation of of these policies that that people have mentioned right like th- this type of hypocrisy but it's it's a uh, I guess, yeah, it, there's so many ways that we could call it, right? But I think, it, you know, this region is very much impacted by climate, climate, um, it, climate disasters in, in the region, um, hurricanes, um, deslavamiento, right? Uh, just all the pesticides that have been used for growing all the, the crops that are exported to the world, um, whether it's textiles or whether it's food, right, or whether it's meat, right, um, all of those kinds of things have impacted, or it, or coffee, right, the things that we enjoy the most, the coffee, and um, I, I think it's just um, not only hypocritical, but it's it continues a attitude um, this you know that we started with, right, like this idea of a manifest destiny where the populations that find themselves under this regime under this under this system, are dismissed; they're disposable, and we—it's—it's it's no surprise that um, the asylum system would be closed down, would be um, shut down when um, Central Americans are, are you know trying to claim asylum. Right? Um, it's happened before; it happened in the '80s, and it's happening now. And as people mentioned, um, you know, we see the Guatemaltecos, the Hondureños salvadoreños being um, dismissed and um, base, in contained right contained in cages mm-hmm. so that's that's really you know again I would see it as a continuation of these politics that we've been talking about and the last thing I want to say is um, in 2012 because people mention uh, presidents right in 2012 President Obama did uh, this executive order that made gangs right a, a terrorist organization and he did that strategically because uh, the the kinds of popul- that that was a tool to um, deny asylum to many people right so to youth right, right? To young people coming from those areas which we you know let's be honest the the majority of the people that are that are coming are young they're in their the prime of their lives They're in their prime, productive, um, you know, age, and um, not only do they need refuge, they also need jobs. So, (laughs) part of you know these policies implemented by these governments, right, have been to contain them, to to not allow them to to claim their rights as human beings.
3: Right. Thank you for that. Well, and to get back to this, to to your initial question of why does that central americans have been historically right we're looking since the civil war has been called economic migrants instead of migrants from uh, due to political strife or due to persecution due to uh, racial persecution for example right um, gender persecution etc um it's part of you know, I, I called it hypocrisy. We could call it an, an invested uh, interest in ignorance, right? Proclaiming uh, oneself to be ignorant of the histories of Central America and the way that the U.S. has really shaped the migration, right, from, from Central America um, to the to the U.S. And um, I think that by calling us economic migrants and therefore denying the intersected ways in which, yes, it's, it's due to um, poverty. We acknowledge the countries have been impoverished, but how have they been impoverished? Right? Through what relationship geopolitically right, have they been impoverished? Right? Um, poverty is constructed. It's constructed locally as it is constructed globally. Right? And so if indeed we are impoverished, and by that, of course, economically and not in any other way, it has occurred through our direct relationship and dependency right, to the U.S. And so there's so much to unpack there. But again, by just labeling all of us or our migrations as economic, it's a way to just continue this discourse of, of ignorance, right? And to continue to place the United States as um, within the salvation narrative, right? Like all we're trying, we're just good and all we're trying, and exceptionalism, right? And we're just trying to help, right? We're aiding these people, we're not hurting these people. Um, and so definitely, though, uh, what we see then is, is, is that hypocrisy. And in fact, if we have been labeled economic migrants, it is because the US's sole interest in the relationship to um, Central America has been to just look at us as their resource, right? Their resources of land, their resources of minerals, their resources of gold, you name it, right? and then also their resources for laboring bodies right and so they can't really think of us outside of that and really if they begin to even think about us outside of that then they will have to begin to humanize us right but if we begin to humanize us right and by this i mean americans humanizing central americans then they will have to reinspect for example uh, the zero tolerance right against uh, central american migrants and the re- the true reasons why Right, um, migrants, Central American migrants, are migrating here to the U.S.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. Super important historical context. So we-
2: to, just really quick, just to add and to, to emphasize um, a couple of things. One is that it's certainly about what U.S. interventions and the politics about U.S. interventions in, in the region, but it's also about the U.S. in the ways that as a nation, um, it imagines itself, right? And it tends to maintain, wants to maintain that image. So there's a number of narratives, right? Stories, if you will, that are, are, there's an effort to keep intact. And those are, you know, we are a nation of immigrants, right? Uh, uh, and so, this idea that we welcome immigrants, uh, uh, with, but hiding uh, of those who are not, who are disposable, right? And in this context, Central Americans. And also, this narrative of, um, you know, a, a benevolence and this narrative of a democracy, right? We stand for democracy. And I think that if there would be a recognition of historical recognition of U.S involvement and interventions in the region, um, and the ways it conceptualizes the region, then it would completely dismantle that those narratives, those dominant narratives that are part of American identity. So it's very much about the historical role in the region, but it's also about U.S. and the U.S.'s own identity.
0: Right, right, that makes sense. Speaking for about an hour now and i don't want to take up too much of your time so i just wanted to thank you all for joining and ask if there's anything you wanted to end on
4: just an invitation for listeners to learn more about our our region to be more active in terms of the uh what is happening for example right now At the detention centers, just be involved in different ways. And I know you—you had mentioned yourself that you're part of that network. So just even if people cannot travel or cannot, um, you know, at this time because of the the crisis that we're living to To just connect to networks, right? To to know what is happening, I think is really critical. And also, I think my colleagues mentioned um, some issues. For example, the the fact that women are being impacted really heavily by the current moment. They were already uh, suffering right through these migrations that we've been talking about, but also now with COVID nineteen, this has really Put a heavy weight on women, right? And so, how can we connect organizations, connect um, causes, right, to support people, to support individuals, to um, to bring bring more light into what is happening in the region? And um, I, I think that that's what I would end with.
3: Great. Anyone else? I just um, want to thank you for the invitation, um, also for just. Paying attention to um, and centering um, Central America, um, I find that in um, just my classes, as someone who focuses on the the region of Central America and the diasporas, that there is still a lot of knowledge right that needs to be uh, disseminated and shared among us um, so that even uh, individuals who come from Central America but then who, say, are in my class will be like, wow! I went to school there, and I never heard this. I never like learned about this, right? And so we're constantly in that process of learning um, Central America. And so I think it's absolutely important, especially at this moment, right? Um, because of what is happening to uh, immigrants and migrants, and this rise of xenophobia that um, has become so visible, right, and so dehumanizing. Um, and so it becomes really important for us to to address that if we really want to, in fact, continue, in my own words, right, to continue to be human, right? to treat each other humanly. Um, and in fact, if we look at Covid, uh, and I've been looking at Covid and I've been looking at how you know families, the kind of the lens that we've been looking at it in the media has been um, family separation, right? So families are suffering. Uh, Parents can't be with their children, et cetera. And all I could think about when I'm looking at this is that us Central Americans, we've been going through this for years, right? Families have been separated for decades, right? And in particular, though, within the last few years, we're looking at children being taken from parents, right? And they can't even see each other through a glass window. Right. And so think about that pain. And I'm hoping that listeners will reflect on that, that they will re- reflect on how painful it is to be isolated, right? To be imprisoned, even in, when it's imprisoned in your own home and you like your home, right? But what does that mean when we are forcibly isolated, right? And when we as a country are putting children in cages, in jails, right? And immigrants in jails and um, parents who cannot see their children, right? And so hopefully we, um, this moment allows us uh, a moment of reflection and empathy, right, for, um, for all immigrants, and in particular for, for Central American immigrants, and then in particular for, for uh, families and um, parents and children.
2: Well, I want to thank you for reaching out, Yvette. We really appreciate um, your interest in our work um, and your interest specifically in the anthology. I guess just to um, conclude, uh, I would say that um, it's important for us to understand these different historical contexts and frameworks, um, in part because it allows us to really question and challenge dominant narratives that circulate in the United States but also in Central America about uh, our communities, about ourselves as Central Americans. You know, I in my work, I I always sort of emphasize that Central America as a region is heterogeneous, and so we don't want to reproduce this homogenizing of the region itself, right? So, um, you know, we also need to be attuned to the specific uh, historical struggles and the different struggles um, within the region, right? And I think that becomes really important, particularly when we talk about Maya migration, uh, which you know I'm. Um, you know, I emphasize in the work that I do, in the work that I, you know, my, my writing, um, that, you know, clearly Mayans have very specific, uh, Maya migrants have very specific struggles that range from language to also the different layers of racism, right, that they face, including within uh, uh Central American communities, uh, uh Latino immigrant communities, right? Um and so that we need to be attuned to those differences and those different struggles and learn um how to unlearn, right, the, the the internalized forms of racism uh that are so common um in in Central America, right, uh in Guatemala. And um I think that what we're gonna see and just you know being in touch with different Maya organizations in Guatemala. What we're starting to see, um, given this pandemic, is that there is going to be an increase of a hunger, right? Um, I'm sure some folks have seen the images from Guatemala of people, Uh, waving white flags, um, asking for food, uh, because even though the government has taken out three huge loans, um, those monies have not trickled down to those to those communities and those peoples in need. So we will see the region in terms of the large disparities that have forced people to be displaced uh, to the United States um, to continue. And it will likely increase because we're seeing an increment in unemployment and an increment in hunger. And the last thing I would say is that we're hearing a lot about uh, slaughterhouses uh, uh, throughout the United States, of you know, the production of food in the United States. And just to remind uh, 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 listeners that much of that production is being done by migrants. And many of those migrants, uh, particularly in slaughterhouses and in the fields, are Maya migrants. They're undocumented migrants from Guatemala, and that we need to think about different ways of standing in solidarity uh, with organizations that are are working in the United States uh, uh, to help um, um, and to aid in changing those conditions uh, for those migrants. Thank you again, Yvette. Really appreciate the opportunity for us to talk about our work
0: no thanks to you all and i think this was an amazing start to a conversation i'd like to continue on the podcast so thank you all so much and i hope we can i can have you back on the podcast soon
4: awesome thank you so much yvette Bye. thank you. Bye.